Welcome. This is the fifth AT5 of the anatomy of the thorax, the anatomy of the lungs, and the pleural cavity. Now before we go, we want to go on today, I, I just want to complete a, a little bit of the extra mediastinum, namely the anterior mediastinum. Uh, we don't think about this area much, and we dissect elderly cadavers where the thymus, which sits here, is atrophic or even unrecognisable. That area that we see on a lateral chest X-ray, of course, lies between the pericardium and the sternum, and it joins the superior mediastinum with the pretracheal space. Now, most importantly, a mass here may represent the downward extension of a retrosternal goiter. The inferior thyroid veins need to be ligated in that circumstance and usually they're a small leash which directly, however, drain into the left brachiocephalic vein. And we remember that this is an embryological difference between the left and the right brachiocephalic veins, or the so-called anterior cardinal veins in embryology, where the left coalesces around a regressing left superior vena cava and it picks up these veins forming the left brachiocephalic vein uh, as they drain. Uh, and this drainage system on the left brachiocephalic vein, the tributaries of the left brachiocephalic vein, don't exist on the right. So uh, once these are divided, the uh, thyroid mass, in this case the inferior thyroid veins, can almost always be lifted up into the root of the neck. I must say only once have I needed to partially split the sternum for a thyroid, but that was a medullary thyroid cancer, which was metastatic to lymph nodes. So almost everything that's gone retrosternally can usually be lifted up into the neck. Now, the thymus is not something we think about very much. It's squeezed behind the infrahyoid muscles, and behind is the pericardium and the aortic arch, the brachiocephalic veins and the trachea. Now, the thymus is often normally enlarged in children, and it may need to be removed um, in clinical practice for a thymoma or a thymic lymphoma, and rarely in some cases of progressive myasthenia gravis. Uh, this is the structure, I guess we remember, which is a pale set of lobules with a cortex and a medulla, and if you remember your histology, the Hassel's corpuscles, which are really just epithelial islands or endodermal elements and remnants of the third pharyngeal pouch on both sides. And to remind, the third pharyngeal pouch forms the thymus ventrally, but it also forms the third parathyroid gland dorsally, whereas the fourth pharyngeal pouch forms the fourth parathyroid gland sitting at a higher level and tissue called the ultimobranchial body, which we remember forms the calcitonin-producing C-cells of the thyroid. To come back to the thymus, the blood supply of the thymus is critical in thymectomy, and that comes from small branches of the inferior thyroid artery and with corresponding veins. Often one or two very stout thymic veins can enter the left brachiocephalic, as I've said, and they're rather short and stubby veins, so they need to be hemoclipped in a thymectomy. The lymphatics from the gland run to parasternal nodes and bronchial and brachiocephalic nodes, although the gland itself doesn't have lymphatic afferents. 
And just for interest in myasthenia gravis, there's been a, an international thymectomy trial that shows that those with persistent weakness and acetylcholine receptor antibodies have a lower steroid need after thymectomy, particularly in young patient cohorts. The technique of thymectomy has been converted, of course, from a transsternal to a thoracoscopic approach, which is now also robot-assisted. Thymic tumours are a heterogeneous collection, which are pretty uncommon, perhaps one per million of the population, and they've also been recently divided by the WHO into thymomas, thymic carcinomas, which are mostly uh, squamous cell carcinoma, but some neuroendocrine variants. And a non-block resection, as you may imagine, could also take involved tissue, such as the pericardium and the, even a little bit of non-anatomical lung wedges, marking the area perhaps for post-operative radiotherapy. An alternative approach to this uh, thymectomy, of course, is transcervical. The VATS approach, the video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery approach, can be um, right or left, but it also can be sub-xiphoid. Now, this is a pretty rare thing, but for those interested, there's just about everything you might like to know on thymic tumours in an article by Girard and colleagues of the ESMO, ESMO guidelines, which was published in the journals of the, uh, in, in the journal, the Annals of Oncology, back in 2015. I just wanted to cover that anterior mediastinum, so now let's move on to the pleura. Now, like the peritoneum and the pericardium, there is a visceral and a parietal layer. The pleural space is a potential gliding space for lung movement and for lung expansion, and is inferiorly represented by a double fold, like the cuff of a sleeve, which, as we know, we call the inferior pulmonary ligament. That's not a good term, but something that must be formally divided so that you can lift the lower lobe upwards. And one of the questions I always ask the students is the parietal pleura or the parietal pericardium or the parietal peritoneum, that's reflected in the case of the pleura onto the lung at the lung root in the mediastinal recess and then becomes the visceral pleura. So how are these two different, parietal and visceral pleura, and why on earth should I care? And there's usually this kind of blank stare about this. But the thing to remember is pleura, peritoneum, pericardium, the parietal stuff is sensate, and the visceral stuff is insensate. The pleura is innervated sensorily by the phrenic nerve, and therefore it's a somatic pain, somatic pain of pleurisy is often referred to the cervical innervation dermatomes of the phrenic nerve. We remember C234, and that's to say the relevant shoulder tip. And it's of course the same reason why intra-abdominal blood, say from a ruptured spleen, can irritate the undersurface of the diaphragm and present as left shoulder tip pain. It's referred somatically to the dermatomes that reflect the myotomes of the nerve. For a refresher, actually, on the phrenic nerves that comes from the cervical plexus, you can have a look at the, my podcast in this series, in the Head and Neck series on this platform, and this is namely AHN, The Anatomy of the Head and Neck 3, which was released around Christmas in 2020. 
Now, these somatic nerves are intercostal, phrenic over the domes of the diaphragm. The difference is, of course, important, as we shall see much later when we discuss the peritoneum in the way appendiceal or gallbladder pain presents early and later on because of our understanding of the difference between the autonomic innovation of an organ or tissue and its somatic innovation. So that's the answer. Now the pleura has specific memorable markings. The pleura extends firstly above the clavicle, as we know, over the apex or the dome or what some people call the cupola of the lung and is limited by Sibson's fascia, the suprapleural membrane. Now it's above the clavicle as the rim of the inner one-third of the first rib and as part of the obliquity, if you look at it, of the superior thoracic aperture or inlet, which means that the apex of the lung is going to go above the collarbone. Behind the sternoclavicular joint, the pleura meets its fellow on the other side from that second rib down to about the fourth costal cartilage, lying in line against one another, with the left then diverging to the lateral sternal border and then turning at the sixth rib because it's pushed out of the way by the heart, that then crosses the sixth rib at the mid-clavicular line, it crosses the eighth rib at the mid-axillary line, and then it comes round to the lateral border of the tenth rib at the erector spiny level, and to the lower border of the twelfth thoracic vertebra midline posteriorly. So one can think, therefore, of the plural markings as being two, four, six, eight, ten, and twelve. And that leaves obviously a small part of the pleura in the costovertebral angle that is actually below the 12th rib. It's, that's pretty relevant. Uh, the lung reaches a position below the 12th rib because in the approach to the kidney, that part of the pleura needs to be formally reflected. So you get on to the level of the 12th rib where you're actually below it in an open nephrectomy and you have to formally look for the pleura and push it away from the lower surface of the 12th rib. So quite simply, thinking of the pleura, as I've said before, in its apposition to the opposing pleura, and think of the levels 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, and think about what happens at each of those levels. I call specific attention to Sibson's fascia, which runs from the inner aspect of the first rib with the subclavian vessels lying on it, and the T1 part of the brachial plexus. And it posteriorly fans out to attach to the C7 transverse process. And it may contain some muscle fibres, whence it can be referred to in some texts as the scalenus minimus muscle, or some texts call it the pluralis muscle. I mention it because uh, one of the old registrar or trainee operations was the removal of a Virchow's node in someone thought to have metastatic intra-abdominal malignancy. This was before the days of fine-needle aspiration cytology. And this was usually representing an intra-abdominal malignancy, gastric or pancreatic, but sometimes ovarian. And removal of that node before FNAC, fine-needle aspiration cytology, was a thing was fraught with problems, not the least of which on the left side, of course, was thoracic duct injury and also significant supraclavicular nerve injury because that covered an annoyingly large area of postoperative numbness. 
and also a pneumothorax. Now, in effect, the lung surface markings lie two costal spaces above the pleural markings in the way I've defined these. So again, just remembering where the lung sits in relation to the pleura as I've outlined it. As I've said before, because the lung raised over the clavicle, the risk of this little operation on the Virchow's node was a pneumothorax, but it usually didn't go anywhere. It often responded to simple drainage in the neck rather than anything uh, more complicated like an intercostal drain. Now we also remember that the intrapleural pressure is negative, and I often ask students about that, but it becomes more negative on inspiration, and that explains how the lung collapses with the pneumothorax when the pressure in that space becomes positive. That negativity, about minus four millimetres mercury, is a result, of course, of the surface tension of the alveolar fluid, the lung elasticity and the elasticity of the thoracic wall itself. So we're trying to meld a little bit of the anatomy with a little bit of the physiology and clinical situation. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this, in this entire series. The typical situation in a viber might be to show you then a lung and ask you the side of the lung. Now, the question itself is not particularly important, but rather why, whether you conceptually understand the differences between the right and the left lungs. The difference in the right and the left lungs relates, firstly, to the risk of aspiration of material, which more normally is into the right lung because the right main bronchus is wider, straighter and shorter. And with such knowledge to know that in the recumbent position, the most dependent, that is the lowest lying bronchopulmonary segment, is actually the apical segment of the right lower lobe. If you've got a cast of the bronchopulmonary segments, which some of the anatomy classes do, and you lie them on their side, you can see that that's certainly the case. The apical segment of the right lower lobe is the most dependent. And its clinical significance is, of course, in an elderly patient who's lying flat on their back and they develop a right lower lobe pneumonia in that way. They might aspirate material or have sputum retention uh, as the cause and causes of their pneumonia, but that's where it kicks off. So it's reasonable if we're looking at the lungs then, just here, and we might have a plastinated specimen, we might have, it's better to look, I think, at a formalised fixed specimen. Uh, but it's reasonable to say that the right lung has three lobes, an upper, middle and a lower lobe, and the left lung has two lobes. But we also recognise that in about a third of cases, the horizontal fissure creating a right middle lobe is incomplete. And the other point I'd also make is that the formation of the right middle lobe shows that it is the homologue of the area in the left lung, which is rather tongue-shaped and which we refer to as the lingula. And if you're going through a lung, if you've got access to do it, you should be doing it now as we go through it. In fact, the lingula is the equivalent of the right middle lobe, but it's rotated through 90 degrees. So whereas the, B, the BP segments, the bronchopulmonary segments and the right middle lobe are medial and lateral in the lingula, because it's been rotated 90 degrees, they are equivalently superior and inferior respectively. But there are other ways to determine a lung side, and I'll go into these as we progress. 
but uh, we see them in assessing the hilum of each removed or resected lung, excised lung. And this is how you're presented with it. You'll have some specimens, maybe if you've got a, a good presection lab, which will show the lung still present in the thorax itself, which may show that part of the lung uh, having been removed, but then leaving the tissues coming away from the trachea, the pulmonary arteries, pulmonary veins, that are coming out of the mediastinum. That area is called the lung root, the bit inside that's left whereas what we're looking at in the lung itself that's resected is the hilum. Now, in a well-fixed specimen, not really so in life, we actually see that by assessing the hilum, there are surrounding mediastinal impressions around that that are made by the nearby structures, the left ventricle, the aorta, the superior vena cava, the azygos vein and the esophagus. I'll elaborate a little later. But remember, when the lung is resected, just to reiterate, that we see the hilum. But if we know the anatomy of the hilum, we have to think of its mirror image, where the structures leave the mediastinum in the chest, which, as I've said, we refer to as the lung root. And I'd encourage students to use these terms specifically. Once we know the anatomy of the hilum, the anatomy of the lung root is therefore the mirror image, which has specific relevance in lung removal in pneumonectomy. Now the appearance of the lung is really a measure I think of how much carbon urban exposure there is. There's lots to see in this, not just anatomy, and it forms one example of the list of industrial diseases from living in cities which are formerly part of the class in pathology of what's called a pneumoconiosis, and in this case it's officially called anthracosis, uh, because of carbon accumulations, and you can see the dotted or speckled, I like the word tessellated, carbon accumulations in the substance of the lung in anthracosis. Uh, but there are other examples, obviously, of industrial lung disease, and it's worth looking at those for people who've got time, but including silicosis in glassmakers or beryliosis, those who work in the cadmium industry and transistors, asbestosis, of course, which uh, is an example of a pneumoconiosis. A lot of attempts have been made to remove that, but there's also aluminosis and actually some really interesting ones like cotton dust inhalation disease, which is called bisinosis, or chalicosis, which is stone cutter's disease, stanosis from the tin industry, talcosis, and so on. Now, grab a lung if you can, and if it's well fixed or uh, in a plastinate, you'll see various sort of shapes and markings on the inner surface of the lung. And one, of course, is the rounded part of the costal margin on the outer surface of the lung, and then you'll find as you go posteriorly this whole rounded part of the lung, which allows you to orientate the posterior and anterior aspect, that posterior part sits in the costovertebral recess behind the angles of the ribs. And then as you come onto the hilum, of course, there's a costomediastinal surface. So we've got to look at the different surfaces of the lungs and see if we can describe them as a costal surface, a costovertebral surface sitting in a costovertebral recess, and a costomediastinal surface where the parietal pleura reflects onto the viscous as visceral pleura. 
there's a sharp inferior surface of the lung, and the concave, so-called diaphragmatic or inferior surface. So let's agree then that we can describe the lung surfaces in a way where there's some consensus about what we're discussing. It isn't just sort of just looking at it and not thinking that there are different parts that we can describe. On the left, we define the presence of a cardiac notch or impression. And now we turn to those mediastinal surfaces. In life, as I've said, we don't see these mediastinal impressions very well, but in a fixed specimen, we do. And the appearance of the lung depends precisely on where it's transected. On the left, the mediastinal surface is dominated by the arch of the aorta and the descending aorta. It's a big divot sitting above the left lung root and then running behind it. If you follow this down, you can, in some cases, see a small inferior indentation for the esophagus. And if you run back up the arch, you can often see another impression that curves over the dome of the lung what we can also call, as I've said, the apex or the cupola. And that's the groove for the left subclavian artery as it runs to the left arm. We see also the fist-shaped depression that is created by the left ventricle, and that explains why the bronchopulmonary segment here, which is the medial inferior basal segment of the left lower lobe, the so-called cardiac segment in some books, may be relatively poorly formed or even formed at all. And these differences, of course, account for the written differences in the number of bronchopulmonary segments between the right and the left lungs, and why the left can sometimes be described in different books, depending on what you read, as containing eight, nine, or ten segments, whereas the right has ten segments. On the right, if we look at the mediastinal impressions here now, they're very different, and we can see a difference between the right lung and the left lung. On the right, the area is dominated by the transverse arch of the azygos vein as it runs over the top of the right hilum into a broader, flatter impression above, which is the superior vena cava. And we can also see below the hilum an esophageal impression, and that explains why the approach to a mid-esophageal cancer is via a right thoracotomy, as was described by the surgeon McEwen of Derbyshire, so-called McEwen's esophagectomy. And again, we can sometimes see a groove over the cupola of that right lung, which is a little impression with the eye of faith, one might say, of the right subclavian artery. Now, as I've said, the hilum is different on each side. If you can look at the two together, and you had to describe what you see, which is often what I ask the students to do, the simplest thing that we can say is that if the lung is correctly cut off, the right hilum is far more complicated than the left. And there is in the right lung simply kind of too much that's going on. In fact, what we see, if the lung is well cut, is that the right upper lobe bronchus can be seen branching off or even separate, depending on precisely where it's cut, as I've said, from the right main bronchus. And that point's important because what it tells you is that the right upper lobe bronchus splits off outside the substance, let's call it what it is, the parenchyma of the lung. And you will, if you look closely, also see 
the right upper lobe pulmonary artery that runs with this. And for that reason, the right upper lobe bronchus is often referred to as the ep arterial bronchus. The point is important in a right upper lobe cancer of the lung and surgical approach in upper lobectomy or pneumonectomy, and I'll elaborate on that slightly at the end. The other point you should note is the typical order, of course, of structures from front to back, vein, artery, bronchus. You can confirm this by feeling posteriorly when the lung is orientated of the cartilage rim in the bronchus. You can feel that thick cartilage rim. And you also see the fairly thin-walled capacitance veins divided usually into a superior and an inferior pulmonary vein that sit in front of a thicker-walled pulmonary artery because that contains a thick-walled tunica media. The veins are capacitance vessels. They're very thin-walled. They have a tunica media, but they're much larger and thinner-walled. So we should also, I think, assess the fissures, even though they are of less significance, but we should look at them in some particular way. Some surface anatomical markings, I think, could be mentioned. The hilum lying at about the third or fourth costal cartilages, or the equivalent of lying at the T5 to T7 vertebral body spaces. There's an oblique fissure, and we can see that running along a line that would join the T3 spinous process at the posterior, say, fifth rib level, and running down to about the sixth rib at the mid-clavicular line. You've got to conceptually assess the obliquity of that line in the way I've described it. It's actually level with the vertebral border of the scapula if the arm is fully abducted above the head. And you can try that for yourself or on someone else. But in essence, the oblique fissure runs along the line of the fifth rib. So there's various ways of thinking of it. On the right-hand side, the fourth costal cartilage would then represent the attachment point of the horizontal fissure. And that would meet the oblique fissure if it was carried forwards at about the mid-axillary line. So there are some surface anatomical markings that we can make of these oblique and transverse or horizontal fissures. Now, this entire system is divisible into bronchopulmonary segments. These two sides are similar, but they're not, as we know, identical because of the way the two lungs grow and develop into each pleural cavity. As we know, the right main bronchus is shorter, but more vertical than the left main bronchus. Aspiration, as I've said, is much more common on the right side. The carina, which is the anteroposterior internal ridge of cartilage of the bifurcation, is actually set a little asymmetrically out to the left, and it accentuates kind of the movement of inhaled material onto the right side, so it's even a little bit more complex. The main bronchus forms the lobar bronchi, and as we recall, the right upper lobe bronchus is given off before the hilum, before the parenchyma of the lung, and so therefore it becomes the right middle lobe and right lower lobe bronchus. The segmental bronchi, which is what we need to know, are typically, as I've said, 10 on the right, which eat, with each bronchopulmonary segment, a pyramid, so that on the right we would have a right upper lobe bronchus, and that's divided into apical, anterior and posterior bronchopulmonary segments. 
the right middle leg bronchus, as I've already said earlier on, has a medial and lateral bronchopulmonary segment. The right lower lobe bronchus has a little apical segment and then basally it runs round like a clock. There's a medial, an anterior, a lateral and a posterior basal segment. So there are your ten. On the left, the apical and the posterior bronchopulmonary segments are often fused into one so that we call that the apico-posterior so that the left upper lobe has an anterior and an apico-posterior. So we've lost one bronchopulmonary segment. A loss also can be seen of the medial basal segment, or the cardiac segment, as I've said, because of the presence of the heart. And, of course, the lingular has a superior and an inferior bronchopulmonary segment, as opposed to the medial and lateral. And I've already explained the lingular as a homologue of the right middle lobe. So that would explain why books will say that the left lung has eight bronchopulmonary segments, but sometimes it can have nine and sometimes it can have the requisite ten. Now I really recommend that you go along and see a bronchoscopy armed with this information. Go in after you've got this in your head and go and have a look at a bronchoscopy. The anatomy comes alive. Failing that, pick out a video on YouTube and cement this in your mind. We used to get more excited, of course, about lobes and segments than we do now because of a couple of reasons. When examining patients, we could, before doing a chest X-ray, uh, figure out where in the lung the infection was located. And that was a feature, of course, of tuberculosis, which had a so-called GON focus, G-H-O-N focus, often in the upper lobe, and its so-called primary complex of draining adjacent lymphadenopathy. Secondly, we were interested in these segments because of the presence of a condition called bronchiectasis. It's almost disappeared, but it was a, a real thing in society. Individual segments were affected and they could require postural drainage. Of course, the ready availability of antibiotics has aborted a lot of these infections which used to go on to destroy individual segments and individual uh, bronchopulmonary uh, parts of the uh, trachea that, that would lead to segmental disease. So people used to get bronchograms and uh, showing segmental disease and bronchiectasis and it was a real thing, but it's something that's kind of disappeared. And of course now we've got very good imaging chest X-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, we don't really care whether we think the disease is upper lobe or middle lobe or what have you in our clinical examinations. We've lost a little bit of that, that's a bit sad, but that is the basis of why we're excited about all these anatomical differences. To come back here, we often forget that in the hilum, of course, um, that... Uh, there are also the bronchial arteries which arterially supply the bronchi. They do what their name suggests. The structure's a little odd here, but there are usually three. There are two bronchial arteries on the left and one on the right. The left bronchial artery usually comes directly from the aorta, and the one on the right is typically a branch of the third right posterior intercostal artery. And these supply the bronchi from the carina, right out to the respiratory bronchial level. On the right, the bronchial veins drain into the azygos, 
and onto the left into what makes up the accessory hemiazygos system. So some can, in a sense, almost anomalously drain into a pulmonary vein and even directly into the left atrium in an example along with the so-called venae cordis minimi, which I'll discuss, um, I think, probably in the next podcast, the venae cordis minimi, or so-called Fabesian veins. This creates some normal degree of venous admixture. The neural supply here also is part of the pulmonary or cardiac plexi with the parasympathetic afferents in the, located in the inferior vagal ganglia and then the efferents coming from the dorsal nucleus of the vagus as part of the cough reflex. Vagal efferents are motor to the smooth muscle of both the bronchi uh, and the uh, pulmonary artery. Sympathetic fibres relay in the upper four thoracic paravertebral ganglia and these connect in that intermediolateral cell column where the sympathetic cells are of T2 to T6 sympathetic outflow. We remember that the sympathetic outflow is thoracolumbar. And these are dilated to the pulmonary arterioles and the bronchi. They're part of a stimulated cardiac output of sympathetic overdrive, or as may occur in exercise. What people like to call the fight flight, I don't like that term very much. To remind the bronchioles, which are less than one millimetre, those are the ones that have lost their cartilage. They lose their cilia, and they're then known as respiratory bronchioles. And then there are primary and secondary alveoli. The erroneous term, I think, of terminal bronchiole, it's a bit of an annoying term. It's not actually the limit of dichotomization or branching, but that just merely are those bronchioles without terminal alveoli, the representative lung here being called an asinus. So there are these extra little terms to remember. The alveolar bearing areas, of course, the respiratory ducts or the alveolar ducts with that typical cubical epithelium and the alveoli themselves housing their type 1 cells, their squames, and the type 2 or surfactant cells. Now, all of this forms embryologically, as we remember, from a pharyngeal downgrowth bud forming the lung epithelium with a glandular appearance at about five months, alveoli developing at about seven months, and surfactant beginning at about six months, which defines uh, uh, quite a lot about uh, fetal viability. Typically, there are so-called five developmental stages which you can assess if you wish, and they include an embryonic, a pseudoglandular, a canalicular, a saccular, and finally an alveolar stage, so that the initial phases of lung development are actually devoted to the formation of the conducting airways after which there's actually an enlargement or, more correctly, perhaps an alveolarization of the gas exchange area. I think we can finish off by just some practical considerations of the anatomy regarding pneumonectomy and lobectomy. Uh, I think it's really actually straightforward in a pneumonectomy and it really begins with the division of that inferior pulmonary ligament, which I've mentioned, that allows you to bring the lower part of the lung up. You then have to open the mediastinal pleura and pull the lung downwards towards you so that the inferior pulmonary vein can be exposed first and isolated. And after that, you then get at the superior pulmonary vein and that's exposed and isolated and the phrenic nerve has to be pushed anteriorly.
Now, these two pulmonary veins can be exposed and ligated actually intrapericardially if there's an extension of a lung cancer outside of that. The right pulmonary artery then can be dealt with more easily if the superior pulmonary vein has already been ligated. But the pulmonary artery here requires very careful dissection. You then get to the right main bronchus after you've done that. These are usually stapled now. Uh, along with a vascular stapling, but the right main bronchus is rather sturdy and it can be stripped clean, obtaining the shortest bronchial stump that you can so that it's not devascularised, it leads to the least risk of bronchopleural fistula, and you can test it on table after stapling uh, for an air leak. Um, if there's a bit of unhappiness about closure of that bronchus, uh, you can just take a bit of pleura or pericardial fat or a bit of intercostal muscle and you can carry out a bit of bronco or bronchial reinforcement. The approach on the left for a pneumonectomy is pretty similar, although I would say that the working room is a little less because of the heart, so that the mediastinal pleural division that you're going to do needs to be a bit more extensive to, so as to expose the hyalur elements and the exposure of the left pulmonary artery is actually a little easier on that side, although at the back and distally, if that's where you need to get, great care needs to be taken because there the pulmonary artery actually runs behind the left main bronchus. Uh, you know, if you look at that, you can see that the left pulmonary artery is, of course, attached to the undersurface of the aortic arch by the obliterated ductus arteriosus so-called ligamentum arteriosum, not a great term. But the left pulmonary artery enters the back of the left hilum. And um, we remember, as I've said before, vein artery bronchus is the order from superficial to back. And so that left pulmonary artery spirals over the top of the left main bronchus to get there. The right pulmonary artery is, of course, a lot longer, and it passes below the carina level in front of the esophagus. It's held a little anterior at the hilum by the presence of the upper lobe bronchus, so that's not a problem if you're doing a pneumonectomy. The um, other point one can mention is, of course, to remember the, the VA structure arrangement works for all over the body. So vein artery nerve, for example, at the neck of the first rib, we have VAN, supreme intercostal vein, superior intercostal artery, stellate ganglion or T1 of the brachial plexus. If we're needling the groin, taking out some femoral venous blood, then it's medial to lateral femoral vein, artery and nerve. So it's a vein, artery, nerve. When we look at the intercostal space, we saw it from above, below. Vein, artery, nerve. That's relevant if you're draining a pneumothorax. Uh, or putting in an intercostal tube, or draining a pleural effusion, or putting in an intercostal nerve block. And so we've got the vein-artery-nerve association, but when we looked at the lung hilum, then it morphs into vein-artery-bronchus. In the kidney, we've not gotten down to that yet, but it's vein-artery-ureter. And even in the free edge of the lesser or so-called gastrohepatic omentum, it's vein-artery-bile duct. So portal vein, common hepatic artery, common bile duct. Now, this vein artery bronchus ligation in lung cancer can, as we know, occasionally be compromised, knowing that the pulmonary vein ligation 
appears to be associated early on with reduced loco-regional recurrence. So that's another reason for ligating the vein, quite apart from the fact that it's in front of the artery. But in challenging cases, the pulmonary artery can be clamped first so that an intrapericardial vein ligation is actually the last step of a cancer pneumonectomy. So this typical approach that one uses may be changed in a difficult case. As I've said before, in a difficult bronchial closure, that might be better performed also manually <coughs> rather than using a stapler. And the mucosa that you expose can actually be formally sutured by a little overlapping pouch to the cartilage ring. The posterior mucosa can be folded onto the front ring in a so-called overholt technique. And you can put in two layers and then cover it with pleura or with pericardium. So there are these alternatives that can be done from uh, an anatomical point of view in real life. Um, I would remind those, for those who are uh, particularly interested, um, if they find this series useful, perhaps you can visit https colon slash slash patron dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash anatopod, that's all one word in capitals, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D, and perhaps you can make a contribution. We'd like to continue with these. Um, and if we can get some simple funding, this will help us finish off this series if you found them useful. If you can let me uh, know uh, through uh, my PA of what areas you'd like covered and whether you found these useful, we can be found at megando, M-E-G-A-N-D-O 57 at yahoo.com. That's a personal email for dealing uh, with um, various matters pertaining to an antipod. So please do let uh, let me know what you've thought of the series. I think we've got another couple of years still to go. We've got to get on to the heart uh, and uh, the internal structure of the heart uh, next and then move on next year into the abdomen and pelvis. We might put in a section on the back and uh, some basic neurology or neuroanatomy. So I think there's still up to about 18 months or even longer um, to go. I can also make notes available for people who do particularly want them. And uh, we've decided at present to leave the system uh, gratis, to leave it free, to make it available and to get out this quantum of information for postgraduates of the level of anatomy I think they should actually know and um, to try and render it a bit more clinical and contextual, as you know, so that it has some relevance. Not only do we know the anatomy, but we know perhaps why it's important, and that's the aim. So please do contact us and let us know. Contribute if you can. That would be greatly appreciated. And thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.